I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54. We're, uh, we've been speaking for several weeks on the subject of righteousness. And I thought I was through with it last week, but I'm not. It seems that the Lord, well, there's just some things about this that he won't let me get away from. So we want to share some things that we've already looked at, maybe go a little bit further today and some things that we haven't spoken about. But um, we started in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 14. God is speaking to his people about that which is to come. And he said, in righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, far from terror as well, for it shall not come nigh thee. Verse 14, he goes on to say, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I'm going to also read from Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 and verse 21. It says, For if or since by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Verse 21, That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to read next from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 17 and 21, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Verse 21, For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Finally, I want to read from Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. It says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now, I want you to notice some things about this. Notice over and over again, it speaks of righteousness as being a means of victory. There is no indication in Scripture whatsoever that God wants us to be saved come into his family and suffer defeat at the hands of the enemy until we die and go to heaven. It's just not there. There is no place in Scripture that provides for those who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus to just hold out to the end, suffering affliction after affliction after affliction, knowing that someday when we get to heaven, it'll be better. Now, I know those are church doctrines. I know that's the way the modern-day church preaches a lot of times. But it just doesn't line up with what the Bible says. The Bible speaks of victory coming as a result of being made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Over and over and over again. Now the Hebrew word that's translated righteousness is pretty much the same thing as the Greek word for righteousness in the New Testament. They both mean equity. But more specifically in the the Old Testament Hebrew is a little bit more descriptive of this than the... uh, the New Testament Greek, but still it's virtually the same meaning. But the Hebrew word for righteousness means rightness. Rightness. It goes further in Strong's Concordance to describe or define this word that's uh, translated from the Hebrew into the English in the Old Testament as righteousness. It speaks of 
moral virtue or power. But then it goes further and it speaks of prosperity. Now, in both the Old Testament and New Testament words that are used, even though the Hebrew is a little bit more descriptive than the the Greek is, in both cases, it identifies, or maybe I should say implies, a restoration. It literally means this. When things are right, this is the way it is. When things are right, there's abundance. When things are right, there's prosperity. When things are right, there's victory in every area. When things are right, the people of God are free from the power of the devil. Well, we certainly know that's the way God made the earth in the beginning. God made the earth in six days, looked around and said, it's perfect and rested on the seventh day. There was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. He put it in the hands of man to exercise dominion over it. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing that could hurt man. There was nothing that was a temptation to man at that point. There was no opportunity whatsoever for sin to have any place until the devil comes on the scene and deceives Eve and Adam joins her. I've often wondered about that. Adam was not deceived. He knew what was going on. He knew to some degree, we don't know exactly what degree, but he knew to some degree that things would change in the earth by disobedience to God. Otherwise, he would have been deceived. I can't figure out for the life of me what the devil said to Adam in the Garden of Eden that caused him to follow Eve into sin. Unless he asked him, do you know about bacon? This fruit of the tree stuff gets old after a while. But there's a thing called bacon. Now, of course, you know I'm kidding. But it was only after the fall of man that sin entered the scene, came upon the scene. It was only after the fall that spiritual death began to reign. Man was separated from God and death began to reign. But when things were right... Man was the one that was in charge and with authority. When things were right, man was operating according to the will of God here on the earth. Now think about this, folks, for a minute. The Bible talks a lot about the kingdom of God. The earth was the kingdom of God in the beginning. Since there was no sin, there was no presence of sin, there was no operation of sin before the fall. Adam... And Eve operated here on the earth according to God's perfect will because they were of his nature. They were made in the nature, the image and the likeness of God according to God's nature, which has to be righteous because God is righteous. God is holy. So Adam and Eve didn't have to check with God every morning about how to handle this situation or that situation. They acted according to their, the source of their life. They acted according to the life of God that was within them. They acted according to the righteous nature that they had been created unto. Think about it like this. Let's say that there's a family business and the father has put a lot of work and a lot of effort for many years into the family business and made it successful. 
And then he turns it over to his son. Now, what is the expectation for the son as the new one in charge of the family business? Well, everybody included or everybody involved, including the, uh, the customers as well as the rest of the family, would expect the son to continue along the successful path of the father. But let's say the son pulls in another partner into the business. Another partner buys in, and he's not a good guy. And this new partner runs the business into the ground. What hope is there for that business unless the son or somebody comes back in and restores it to the principles that the father used to make it successful? I know that's not a good illustration that that fits and follows in every aspect, but that's basically what Jesus did. Jesus came to make things right. Jesus came to put things back on track according to the successful manner that his father had created the earth. The Bible talks about, we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it talks about if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And then for the next several verses, it talks about man being reconciled unto God. The word reconciled and uh, reconciliation, the word reconciled in any form that I've found in the New Testament, means a mutual exchange, means something was exchanged for something else. And then verse 21 culminates the, the uh, exchange to tell us what was done. Jesus exchanged his life for our death. He exchanged his life so that we could live. He sacrificed himself so that man could be restored and all things reconciled to God through his blood. Now I want you to look, with something, look at something else with me here. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. I want to start in verse 25. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body or what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat? And the body more than raiment. Now folks I, I know he's speaking specifically of food and clothes here. But I think these are representative terms. That apply to anything and everything we buy. Anything and everything that we need to buy. For our lives. And in that respect I think he's saying. Don't worry about money. Or what the money can buy you. Now is there anything that people are more concerned about in this earthly life. Than money. And the things that we need. And I don't mean it in a critical way. I don't mean it in an evil way. I'm not talking about people trying to access money to to harm other people. I'm just talking about money to live and money to provide for themselves and their families. That's a good thing, isn't it? To have a desire to provide for our families. Well, it must be a good thing because God provided for us. To the ultimate degree in the Garden of Eden, he provided for his children. So when Jesus is talking, he's basically saying, don't waste your time thinking about money. Now, if the church ever started operating like that, that would change everything about them. Because if you take away the time that people, Christians worldwide, not only in this age, but in every other age. If you take away the time that the, that the world 
saved or unsaved, puts into thinking about money, we'd have a whole life available to us. Half of our time would be given back to us. Yet Jesus says, don't spend your time thinking about money. Now, why in the world would he say that? Because when things were right, man had no care or concern for money or things. Jesus came to make things right. Therefore, take, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or how can we pay these bills, or whatever else the situation arises? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now, in light of the things that we just said about the Hebrew words for righteousness, as well as the Greek, in light of that, Jesus is literally telling us it's futile to worry about money. The earth was designed to produce for you. It's the way God made it. And Jesus, having reconciled us unto God or made things right once again for those that accept him, Jesus as the Lord and Savior, he's saying the earth will produce for you. The earth will provide for you. God set it in motion from the beginning and nothing the devil can do or ever has done can change that. The earth will provide. Now when it says seek first the kingdom of God, what does that mean? Sounds good. But how many of us are convinced that we're really seeking the kingdom of God? That's one of those things where the devil could come to you and say, well, you're not living right enough. You're not worthy. You're not in a position to be able to have what the Bible says because you don't live up to its measure or its standard. It's an opportunity, a good opportunity for the devil to bring condemnation on us in just about every area of our lives. But Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God. In fact, he sent the disciples out to preach the kingdom of God. It came as a real shock to me to realize that Jesus did not send his disciples out to tell people that he, Jesus, was the Messiah. We get so focused in the modern day that we live in that the job of the church is to preach Jesus. That I guess, I don't know what everybody else's attitude was, but I guess I just assumed that they went out telling Everybody that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, and doing miracles. And he said we could do miracles too, so they did. But that's not the case. It couldn't be the case. Because in Mark chapter 16, 
I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? They came back and responded, well, some say you're Elijah and some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he said, who do you say I am? Now, if the disciples had been taught and instructed to preach that Jesus was the Messiah, their immediate answer would have been, well, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the one you told us you were. But that's not what they said. And if Jesus had commissioned them to go and preach that he was the Christ or that he was the Messiah, come to save the world, then he wouldn't have asked, who do you say I am? Been no reason for that whatsoever. Peter answers on behalf of the rest of them, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus says, flesh and blood has not showed this to you. Blessed art thou, Simon of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not showed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Which means Jesus is not the one that told him it. If Jesus had instructed them and, and convinced them that he was the Christ and that he was the Messiah, then flesh and blood would have revealed it to him. So what is this kingdom of God stuff? If it's not that Jesus is the Messiah, what did they preach? What were they commissioned to preach? Well, the the only thing that gives us any definition of the kingdom of God whatsoever. Now, we know basically what the kingdom of God would have to be because we understand the words themselves. Kingdom would be territory. And the kingdom of God would be descriptive of the territory under God's rule or or reign. Which in the beginning was the whole earth. But then the fall separated man from God. So what is this kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God, obviously, is where God rules and reigns. Jesus responded by giving the disciples what's known in the church circles as the Lord's Prayer. It really wasn't the Lord's Prayer. It was the disciples' prayer. And it was for a period of time to end with the church age. But part of it was, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the only definition that Jesus ever gave us in any form whatsoever about what the kingdom of God would be, he gives us some descriptive terms along the way saying that healing is part of the kingdom of God and such and so forth but the closest thing we've got to a definition comes from Jesus where he defines the kingdom of God is where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven well that would certainly have to fit if God's in rule in control or reigning over any area of this earth then his will would have to be done and his will would be accomplished in earth just like it is in heaven so the definition fits But when you think of it in those terms, it answers a lot of questions or should answer a lot of questions for a lot of people because nobody has any doubt about how things are in heaven. We don't have a whole lot of knowledge about how a lot of things are, but we know that the will of God is done in heaven. We know there's nothing that can hurt man in heaven, just like God created the earth in the beginning as a place where nothing could hurt man. We know there's no sickness or disease in heaven. So if the kingdom of God is ruling and reigning in us or through us or on our behalf, then it would be a place that's free from sickness and disease here too. It would be a place where all the attributes and characteristics of God, the peace of God, for example, the life of God would rule here on the earth just like it does in heaven. Right? So when the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, 
then we have to understand, we have to conclude, I believe, that seeking after righteousness is seeking after the understanding of who we are in Christ and our ability to stand before him without a sense of guilt or shame. What else could it be? So he says, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God where the will of God is done on the earth in your life just like it is in heaven. And his righteousness, the foundation for victory in every area that we experience here on this earth as a part of this natural life. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Now turn back with me to to, uh, Psalm 84. I want you to see something here. Psalm 84 Notice verse 11. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. The last part of the verse is what I want you to see. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now that sounds good. But what do we understand? What do we know about what the phrase, those who walk uprightly, means? See, there's an area where the devil will come in and say, well, that's not you. It could be you, but you know you. (laughs) So what does walk uprightly mean? No good thing will he withhold them that walk uprightly. Jesus has just said in Matthew chapter 6 that we read that all these things, the money you need, the provision you need, the clothes you need, the food you need, the bills paid that you need, and so forth, all these things will be added to you if we get, put things in the right perspective. If we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then God will add all those things to us. Here it says no good thing. Money's a thing. No good thing will he withhold to them that walk uprightly. Now, folks, I would submit to you if if the psalmist is inspired by the Holy Ghost to say words that mean no good thing will he withhold from them that do everything perfect and never miss it. Then we've got a lot of other pages to tear out of the Bible and scriptures to do away with. Because there's no place, Old Testament or New Testament, where the Bible tells us that our Ability, success to avoid any sin in our lives is the way to God. In fact, the Bible tells us over and over again, both Old Testament and New Testament, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham offered enough sacrifices and God counted it to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham resisted enough temptations. So that it was counted unto him his righteousness. Now the Bible says there's faith that pleased God. It was faith that caused Abraham to be counted righteous. This was Paul's message. Paul's message was it's not about keeping the law. It's not about what you do. It's not about living right in that context or in that sense. It's about receiving the free gift of righteousness and being made in the image of God, recreated in the image and likeness of God. 
So walking uprightly then would have to be an act of faith or the result of faith and not good works. No good thing will he, our Heavenly Father, no good thing will God withhold from them that walk uprightly. To walk uprightly is to do what the Bible says we're supposed to do. And it says it again and again and again that the just shall live by faith. The Bible doesn't say the just shall live by good works. The Bible doesn't say the the just or those who have been made righteous will earn a place with God through the things that they do or the things that they don't do. But that they shall live by faith. So walking uprightly would have to be walking by faith. It's the only thing that pleases God. Walking uprightly would have to be walking in the word. Letting the word dominate your life. Letting the word be your guide. Walking uprightly, according to the New Testament commandment, the new commandment of the New Testament, would have to be to walk in love and to believe on the name of Jesus Christ. That's what John said the commandment was. So that has to be what walking uprightly means, doesn't it? No good thing will he withhold to them that walk uprightly. Now compare that with what we just read over in uh, Matthew chapter 6 about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is literally telling them, and if he's telling them, he's telling us too. He's literally saying, don't waste your time worrying about how things turn out. Don't waste your time thinking about whether or not you're going to have enough. Don't waste your time thinking about how to pay the bills or the money you need to buy something. Don't waste your time thinking about that, Jesus said. Now, Jesus said that. If it was in one of the letters written to the churches, we might have a chance to blow that off a little bit easier. But Jesus said that. He said, don't waste your time. Take no thought, therefore, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Don't waste your time thinking or worrying about it. And for goodness sakes, don't speak it. Take no thought saying. And why would that be important? Because faith is of the heart and confession is made with the mouth. So walking uprightly would have to be to accept the word of God, whatever the word of God says concerning us or our situations. Believing the word and acting on it accordingly. Believing the word and confessing it with our mouths. Paul wrote to the Colossians. And he prayed for them a similar prayer. There was a little bit of difference in the one that he prayed for the Ephesians and the one that he prayed for Colossians. But part of the Colossian prayer that he prayed, he said, I pray that God would enable you to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. Walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. What is walking worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing? When I first saw that phrase 35 years ago, maybe longer, Well, yeah, it would be longer. Anyway, when I first saw that phrase, the first thing I thought was, I've got to live right. God wants me to live right. Well, he does, but that's not what he's talking about. A better way to approach this would be to say, God wants me to live by faith. God wants me to live by the word. Because that's what walking uprightly has to be. It can't be behavior. So what what I'm saying is this, folks, living right, which the church majors on in so many areas, 
Living right is living by faith. Living right is living by the word. Applying the rightness that Jesus restored and reconciled us unto God to have is to live by faith and to walk in the word. That would have to mean then walking by walking in the spirit would have to be walking by faith. Where Paul wrote to the Galatians, walk in the spirit, therefore, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He's telling us that the key to walking in the spirit, walking pleasing to God, is to walk by faith, which means you have to be walking according to the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So if you're walking by faith, you have to be walking according to the word. By the definition of the words themselves. What does that mean? Well, that means if we apply it in another area in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, where it says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has to be righteousness. Has to be. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you'll confess Jesus as your Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Well that confirms what the Old Testament tells us about righteousness being the foundation of our relationship with God. Now I didn't know that's what I was believing for when I got saved. Did you? I didn't know that I was believing unto righteousness. Righteousness was not an issue for me when I was saved as a young boy. I just had heard that Jesus would come and live in your heart. So I said, okay. Now here, 55 years later, in some respects, I'm just finding out what that really meant. I'm just finding out the righteousness that we've been made unto or gaining a deeper understanding of it at least. But I had it all the time. I was made right with God just like you were when you asked Jesus into your heart. And you've been right with God ever since. Now that should be good news for us because I'm sure you like me haven't felt like we were right with God ever since. But we were. Living right is living by faith. Living right before God is living by the word. See, folks, our relationship with God as children of his is not a thousand different things. It's one thing that shows up in a thousand different ways. It's one thing, righteousness, that upholds us. It's one thing, righteousness, That leads us into victory. It's one thing. Righteousness. That causes us to reign on the earth. So that the will of God can be performed in our lives. Here. Now. Just like it is in heaven. It's one thing. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Um, 
Let's start in verse 11. It says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. And whenever God says, As, as I live, he's talking about the, the certainty of his existence. He's talking about the certainty of his life. He's talking about an eternal purpose and a never-changing situation. As long as I live. Saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now verses like that scare some people. Because they know they haven't lived right. According to their own understanding or according to church teaching. But Paul goes on to say, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. But judge by this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Paul begins to, to explain to the Romans that he understands now what he didn't used to understand and what he didn't used to know. He understands that there is nothing that God created that can be unclean. So there's nothing that he can partake of or experience here on the li- in, uh, in his life on the earth that can be displeasing to God. But not everybody agrees with that. Not everybody has the same knowledge. Not, not everybody is as strong in the Lord as Paul is. So Paul's whole purpose in talking about these things is, I don't want to just live what's lawful to me because everything's lawful to me. I've got right standing with God no matter what. I've got right standing with God whether I do something that somebody else doesn't understand or whether I don't. But if I'm going to walk in love according to the righteousness that I've been made by the sacrifice of Jesus, the rightness of performing the will of God in my life here on the earth just like it is in heaven, if I'm going to live up to that, then I'm going to have to live in such a way that I don't do anything that causes somebody else to stumble. See, folks, that's why the, the, the argument, the debate about should we drink or can we drink alcohol, that's why it's foolish. Can we drink alcohol and be okay with God? Sure. Should we? I don't know. That's a different area, different question, different issue. I shouldn't because some people would be offended if they found out that I did. Should you? You're the only one that can answer that. You know, folks, I'm a Yankees fan. I like the New York Yankees. When I was eight years old, I think it was in third grade, I had to do a book report, and I got this little paperback book about the New York Yankees. And it talked about guys in their past and talked about how many championships they had and all this other kind of stuff. And so since I lived in Birmingham, Alabama, and the closest baseball team to us was the Atlanta Braves, and they stunk, (laughs) I became a Yankees fan. Now, I've been a Yankees fan all my life. I know there are a lot more. Well, let me say this. I'm not a rabid Yankees fan. I've met some people that everything is Yankees, but I just like the Yankees. They're just my team. I made them my team. I chose them to be my team. They're my team. Well, growing up, My kids knew that I was a Yankees fan. I didn't have to try to make them Yankees fans. Now, to a degree, to a measure, 
My kids are Yankees fans too. And they don't know anything about the Yankees. They're a Yankees fan because I'm a Yankees fan. So folks, in one respect, I've evangelized my kids to the New York Yankees. And I want you to think about what those words mean. They became what I was, not because I was trying to make them the same thing, but because that's who I was. Your kids will become who you are, not who you preach to them about being. Now, if that's not a sobering thought for all of us, I don't know what is. See, with that in mind, there are things that I could do that I won't do. Because I don't want my kids to see it. Very seldom do people enter into these conversations about, is it lawful to do this? Or is it okay with God if I do that? Or things to that respect. Very seldom are those questions or conversations about what's better for somebody else. But in my experience, they've always been about, What do I want to do? Are you out there? So what is living right? Paul says living right is not just doing what's lawful to do. Living right is living by the word, living by the law of love that takes the other person into consideration. So rather than looking at things in the, the... With the question of what do I want to do? What's okay with God if I do? Paul's saying look at it from a standpoint of how will this affect other people? That's walking in love. That's walking in the spirit. That's walking uprightly. It's walking by faith. In that context he goes on. Verse 15 he said but if your brother is grieved with your meat... Eating meat offered to idols was a big deal back then. Now walkest thou not charitably. It's not walking in love to do something that's going to cause a problem for somebody else that's not as strong spiritually as you. That's what he's saying. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken. For the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God, the place where God rules and reigns, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not rules about what you should do. It's not about whether or not you keep certain ritual functions. Concerning them, it's not about keeping the law of Moses. It's not about the do's and the don'ts. Well, if the kingdom of God is not about keeping rules and living right, as so much of the church world thinks, What is it about? But the kingdom of God is not about meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, he that in these things serves Christ is uh, is accepted unto God and approved of men. What's living right? Walking by faith, walking in love, walking according to the word. That's what living right is. And folks, when we live right, walk by faith, 
seeking God's kingdom first, seeking after righteousness, right standing with God, seeking after peace, and seeking after joy in the Holy Ghost. When we put those things first, Jesus said, all the other material things will be added to us. When we live according to the word, when we walk by faith, it makes things right. It restores us back to what we lost in Adam's sin. It makes things right. And the right condition is the original condition. It's abundance. It's peace. It's prosperity. It's authority. It's freedom. All these things because we've been made right before God. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You've been made that way. And God gave us a whole book of promises, but more than promises. He gave us a whole book, many letters, to tell us what Jesus accomplished for us so that we could take hold of it, so that we could reign in life through righteousness, through the understanding of who we've been recreated to be, of the fact that we've been recreated spiritually, in the image and likeness of God. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is the knowledge that I've been made right before him. The knowledge that I never. Paul speaking about these things says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain grace and find mercy to help in time of need. It's because we've been made righteous that we can always come before the throne of God. That we can always partake of and take hold of the power of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the blessings of God because we've been made right. Folks, it's that rightness, that righteousness that enables us to stand before the devil in the middle of his attacks and accusations and resist him. I resist you, Satan, because I've been made righteous. And here's what the word says. He can't withstand that. He can't stand against it. He has to go. Oh, he'll put up a show. He'll try to make you think that that won't work. Even if it works for other people, it won't work for you because of how you've done, what you've been, where you've been, and so forth. But he knows, hoping that you don't know, that if you hold your ground, he has to leave. Think about the times that the Bible says, don't be afraid because I've got you. Think about the verses we read where it says, don't be afraid because I'll uphold you. I'll hold you up with the right hand of my righteousness. Well, being upheld means we won't go under, doesn't it? We won't sink. 
Being upheld means we'll be victorious. Being upheld means we'll conquer whatever it is the devil's bringing against us. And that's the good news of Jesus. You always win. When you understand and accept and walk in who you are and walk according to the word as if the promises of God are true, which thank God they are, you win every time. You may not win instantly. It may take a while. But you win every time. And that's why Jesus died. That's why he left us here on the earth after we get born again. To exercise his authority, his victory, by the shedding of his blood and the offering of his body. So that we manifest to the world the fact that Satan is defeated. The Bible says if Satan had known what Jesus was going to do at the resurrection... He never would have offered him up for, to be killed. Can you imagine on the resurrection morning when Jesus shows up and then breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Ghost, and now they become righteous in the sight of God just like Jesus was when he was here on the earth? Can you imagine the anguish on the part of the devil? I think too often we give the devil credit for things that he just doesn't have and isn't. Have you ever noticed when Jesus appeared before somebody that was demon-possessed and that evil spirit spoke, it was always something in line with, have you come to torment us before the time? Think about what that means, folks. That means the devil and his crowd, the evil spirits that are in operation against us in the world, that means the number one thing on their mind and what they are most convinced of and know for a surety that their time is coming to be tormented for all of eternity. You think you've got problems. <laughs> Have you come to torment us before the time? They know their time's coming. So rather than be bothered by and worried about how we're going to make it through. I think it would do us good to stand in the face of the enemy every now and then said, and say to him, do you remember what's coming for you? <laughs> it puts things in right perspective because we are the victors. We are more than conquerors. No matter what we may be going through, no matter the, the difficulty of the hard place that we may be in, we're more than conquerors. We've already been made victorious. We've already been given authority over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt us. That's what Jesus died for. If the church would ever get a hold of that, if we would get a hold of that, if we would get a hold of that picture of ourselves and our connection with God, our being in union with God, so that the same power that was in Jesus is now in us. To realize that the same victory that Jesus experienced is in us. Are there many times where the devil is, where, where Jesus, is there any time where Jesus is bothered by the devil? Even when the devil shows up, Jesus just answers, well, here's what the word says. 
even when Jesus runs into hard places or hard situations, difficulty with the evil spirits that the disciples couldn't cast out. He's not bothered by it. When he cast the evil spirits out of somebody and the devil threw them on the ground and tore them or created a circumstance to where everybody else around thought he was dead. Jesus get bothered by that? No. Because he knew that he had the life and the power of God through righteousness available to him on the earth. And that's what the Bible says you have. The devil is not your problem. He may be stirring up trouble. But he knows that you've got the greater one. Amen. That's what Jesus died for, folks. That's what Jesus offered his life for us to obtain. That's why he said when we partake of these communion elements, we're showing his death till he comes. Why do we want to show his death? To remind us of who we are. Not just to agonize over the suffering that Jesus experienced, which was great. But so that we can say, his life is our life. His righteousness is our righteousness. His power is our power. His victory is our victory. That's what this communion means. It means you've been made victorious through righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've made us righteous by the blood of Jesus. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. We don't have to be concerned at all. Because everything that Jesus provided for us is ours. You said you'd supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Father. We accept that. We take hold of that. Receive it by faith. You said, Lord, that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes we're healed. We receive that by faith. We thank you, Father, that no hard place, no difficulty, no test trial or affliction that anyone that's a part of this church, part of your family, no matter what they're going through, Father, we thank you that victory is theirs. And it's theirs because they've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you that it was by your grace that you sent Jesus to the earth. It was by the faithfulness of Jesus himself that took him to the cross. And it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that he became the firstborn from the dead and seated at your right hand. Thank you, Father, for your righteousness. In Jesus' name.